lucky ones. Your mommies let you live, but many of them are sacrificed to their gods of Moloch. Podcast video is about the sin of actually killing a baby, murdering the baby. Story is not over. It is actually the beginning. A beginning of how many people does it take to commit murder, baby murder. Ultimately, everyone gets involved. All citizens, one way or another, have to live with the aftermath of what these mothers and their government have decided to do is to kill babies. So it's not just a personal decision like they want to tell the world, my body, my choice. It actually involves God because God isn't put in that position to judge those people that have committed these sins and the spirit that's still crying out from the ground. You don't get to just flush away the baby and not think there's nothing of it just like it's a piece of trash. You don't get to take the remains and cut them up into little parts to sell off to a medical industry and not have any consequences. You don't get to take all those remains and just dispose of them in an incinerator or some hideous ways and not have the, all that blood crying out from the ground to God. The story of Cain and Abel is, was exactly that. Where Cain killed Abel and he thought Abel was dead and you know, because he was jealous of what he provided God as his sacrifice. And it caused him to rage and kill his brother. But the story continues that the blood of Abel was crying out from the ground where God heard him and God took action against Cain, even though he didn't kill Cain right there and then. But he did put a mark on Cain. It actually was to help him so no one else in the world would kill him because he murdered his own brother. So God still protected Cain no matter what. God has to provide justice for the blood of Abel that's still crying from the ground. So all the dead babies from beginning of time till now are still crying out from the ground. And hopefully when you go through this podcast, you'll see how many people have muddied their hands with this sin and death. And ultimately, we're all responsible now for some of these foolish people that have made this decision so lightly. And it doesn't really matter what their decision is and why it comes from. It is mostly, almost 100%, is a matter of convenience that they just don't want to raise a child. And that's the sad part, that the crime itself so hideous to rip up the baby like that. Can you imagine having to do that to an adult and not have everybody horrified? But then nobody's horrified from the fact that it's happening to tiny little babies that are so vulnerable and dependent on their mother. But their mother is their murderer. If you're sensitive to this information, I would caution you not to watch or listen to it. But it is, if you're an adult and you want to see, you know, the evil that's taking place right now and how the new generation is trivializing it to mean nothing, where they're actually filming this 
their own abortion and televising it to the rest of the world. That in itself is beyond the level of evil. And when you watch Dr. Drew show interviewing this woman who conducted that, filmed it, you'll see how stupid she sounds. So not only she's admitting that she's just sleeping around with multiple partners, didn't want to use birth control because that's something that's scary to her, but the filming the abortion was not scary. She doesn't have any fear of God whatsoever. So that in itself, I think, you know, it just shows you the level of depravity that's going on in people's hearts. God's going to have to step up at some point and take judgment of what's going on. Right after the Roe v. Wade decision got overturned, in that podcast, I was talking about that this was just a beginning to allow each state to enact their own laws that were much worse than what the federal laws allowed. So initially, the Roe v. Wade decision was to allow abortion, but they analyzed it through viability of the fetus, and they came up with a number of 27 weeks or something of that effect, that the fetus was viable, and after that, you know, they they would prohibit, uh, in most states, at least by federal law, any abortion beyond that point. So the whole, you know, discussion was, what is a fetus viability? Uh, when does it become fully formed? And all of that. And it was around in the 70s where they didn't have that much uh, sonogram pictures and all these other sophisticated pictures of that you can see, visualize that the baby is forming in the womb, even right after conception. So, you know, the technology is really, really good to even make 3D images of the baby growing inside. So no one can really argue that, you know, like the same viability stuff that they were arguing back then. Clearly, they're murdering babies. They're murdering the most innocent and the helpless human being that can ever exist. As a society, they're deciding which baby to kill. The mothers and the government are making that action together. This video really is, I wanted to point out that it's not just one person that's committing the sin. It's hundreds and hundreds of people and ultimately the nation itself that's participating in the sin. I was going to title this podcast, How Many People Does It Take to Kill a Life? I don't think there's a number that you can count. I think it's infinite. Because as everybody gets involved, from the person who counsels the mother to get an abortion, the doctors, the nurses, staff that has to carry out the whole clinic, the lawmakers, the people that are supporting this, pro-abortion people, people that have to carry out the bodies, the people that have to incinerate, the morgue, all kinds of people in the chain. From the moment the decision is made to kill and murder human life, somebody has to carry that out. And it involves a lot of people. So I'm going to show you a few of the videos that are in this Uh, podcast of people that are involved in trying to figure out what to do with the body. What happens to the bodies? You know, there's 
60 million babies that have been murdered. That's like the most greatest holocaust that ever exists. More than any other war, more than any sort of, you know, intentional genocide. So what happens to all those bodies? What I wanted to point out in this podcast is what I said the last time, that it wasn't about the decision of Roe v. Wade, whether it was right to be have an abortion or not have an abortion, or have the federal government get involved. It had nothing to do with that. So all those you know people that protested, thinking, well, they're taking your right away from abortion, that wasn't the case. That was just drama, paid for drama, for people to go out there and protest to make a scene to feel like you know their rights were being taken away when in fact every state most states allow abortion and what it was really about was to expand the abortion term not just from the first trimester or even the second trimester but all the way to the third trimester and birth post birth so I wanted to show you guys all the states are already considering this. See, now that the states are open to decide and craft their own laws because Roe v. Wade was um, outdated, outdated from what they're actually able to do now. And it all ties in to the baby part business that they want to sell. And, you know, the crude method that was happening earlier on was that they were using these forceps to rip open the baby apart, limb to limb, head, crush your skulls, all of that. You know, the gore movies, what they're made of. So a lot of the parts were not usable. So as the industry grew to buy and sell these parts for medical and other reasons, they wanted more, uh, they wanted to harvest the organs intact. The brain intact, the eyes intact, the heart, the liver, all of that. Even tissues, they don't want it crumbled up and so make it unusable. So what they were trying to do is they, they really wanted to push the abortion uh, in the late stages, third trimester, but now up to 28 days after birth. So, you know, they'll say, well, what happens if the baby is born alive and the abortion is botched. Uh, well, one of the videos say, well, that is just an unlikely scenario. It never happens. Well, it could happen if they're doing late-term abortion easily. Uh, that would induce labor. And then, you know, then all of a sudden their humanity comes back. Well, well, we will do anything to save the baby, of course. So it wasn't a baby two seconds ago. But then it becomes a baby once it's outside the womb. So you can see their delusions. You can see the evilness that they just can't recognize in themselves what they're saying. It's stupid. So once they see it outside the womb in natural delivery or even unnatural delivery, they'll consider it baby and start giving it life-saving measures. But even that is not satisfactory because they don't want that baby to live. What they want is all liability removed in case any of that happens. And they even want to allow up to 28 days, so that's almost a month old baby that they want to be able to kill. 
So somebody has to take care of that baby up to a month before the mother says, no, take it back, I don't want it. Kill it. So look at all these state laws. Colorado could pass post-birth abortion infanticide up to 28 days. California plan is to do post-birth abortion. Uh, Maryland proposes a bill for 28 days after birth. And there are many others. I think even Virginia was considering that. Uh, So then says another one, Montana rejects ballot measure to require medical care for infants born alive after the attempted abortion. So they want the right to kill the baby. If it comes out alive, you know, the measures that they would have to take before while it's in the womb are pretty drastic. They're ripping limbs, they're crushing skulls, they're doing all kinds of horrible things to maim and injure that baby before it even comes out. So the fact that it somehow comes out and they want to have life-saving treatment, the quality of that baby's life is already taken away from them. You know, what's the point of trying to save it if they're, you know, all their limbs are missing and their brain is now taken half a big chunk out. You know, perhaps that baby wouldn't live long anyway, but the, it's very tough to be able to kill something unless you're doing it very deliberately. You know, if a baby's born into the world despite the botched abortion, you know, then of course you should try to take care of it and do everything possible. But the states are removing that right because they don't want have to have any liability for any of the practitioners doing this. So imagine this baby actually is allowed to live with a botched abortion and then somehow, you know, it's coming out with some damage. Guess what? When that baby grows up, it's going to be able to sue the doctors, the mothers, everybody involved. So they cannot allow that. That's the only reason why they would want to kill uh, post-abortion babies that failed to die while they were in the womb. And the other thing that's happening is that, you know, the 28 days, again, I don't understand how they could kill born babies for that already exist in this world for at least a month which mother is going to say, go ahead and kill it? So that, to me, it seems unreal. And I haven't figured out why they would want to kill baby after 28 days. Because, you know, they can easily extend that. There's already been talks about some crazy loons to that, you know, kids don't really have much of a presence or a soul until after two years old. Uh, you know, like they're they're making up all kinds of weird claims that they can allow to kill babies and children up to two years old. And just like the days of Moloch, they were actually found body remains, you know, like skulls and other stuff uh, that they studied. And they found that some of these children were up to five years old. They were sacrificing not only babies, but toddlers and small children to their Moloch god. And we know that spirit has not gone away just because 
we don't live in the old days like they used to do it. We do it in a modern way, which is called abortion. Why couldn't they just decide at some point, this is just pushing the boundary line a little bit further each time. So from Roe versus Wade, you know, they had it up to 20-some weeks uh, before they could legally perform an abortion. Then now this allowed them to push it all the way up till birth. New York has that law to all the way up to birth. So every state you can see, like New Jersey, California, Montana, all of these liberal states that wanting to go ahead and push the limits all the way up to birth. But now we're talking about post-birth abortion, which is up to 28 days. So the fast checkers come out and say, oh, no, no, this is not happening. But it is, in fact, is in their language, it is happening. And given another 10, 20 years as these abortion laws materialize to what they want it to happen, it's going to get pushed even more and more of those limits. Because they don't want to have population growth. They don't want babies to grow up into the image of God. So you know, Satan is doing every which way he can to destroy life. And there are many mothers who go along with this because they're deluded. Their soul is not aligned with God. It's more aligned with the demons that inhabit them. You have to be demonized to be able to kill your own children. You know, there's no excuse for it once the baby's born that they would do this or even consider it. You know, God said in the Bible that he couldn't even imagine to burn their children alive with to the Moloch God. You couldn't even imagine it. In the modern times, when there's so much technology and legal system that backs it up, can God really imagine what's going on now? Can you even imagine, you know, 60 to 70, 100 million babies? 60 million is only what they tell you that's being recorded. But worldwide, it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of babies being killed. A lot of the eastern countries do it because they want to get rid of girls and only have boy babies because boys bring in the money, girls take the money. That's their philosophy. So they don't like the idea of having to raise girls and spend money on them while they want to have boys to take care of them, give, you know, provide for them, bring in the money to the family. So the value of girls is nothing until all the boys are now left with a single man without wives. And that's been the problem growing in the Eastern world where there are not enough women now bring in new families to you know have wives. So there are a lot of lonely men that are left single and they're going to eventually turn to violence because that's what happens. You know, the, the peacemakers are both men and women. You got to have a healthy family in order to have peace in the world. When you mess with that system, the nuclear family, you'll have nothing but evil and violence increasing. And a lot of angry kids, you know, not having loving fathers and mothers because everybody's out looking for money. So they will sell their kids, they will abuse their kids, they will kill their kids. Evil is being committed for money. They, they, they don't trust God to provide for them. So they have to come up with their own ways to provide for themselves because God is not somebody that they would consider other than to ask for stuff, you know, to pray to the demons 
the idols to get what they want. There's this one article that talks about uh, what percentage of abortions are medically necessary because you hear that propaganda all the time that you know not providing abortion to women uh, when it's a medically necessary procedure and that you know they always bring up rape and says whatever uh, so this article was really talking about that you know in today it is possible for any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless uh, she suffers from a fatal disease like cancer or leukemia. So basically saying that you can preserve not only the life of the mother, but you can also preserve the life of the fetus. So there's no reason to make that decision to kill the baby to save the mother when with today's medical treatment, uh, it's allowing both of them to live and so why aren't they using every method to save the baby as well? Because they have incubators. They, they can save preemies, you know, from very early stages to uh, have life-saving treatment and the, the, the baby can live as well. But every law, every philosophy, every everything that they talk about is really to kill the baby for the sake of the mother, when that rarely happens anyway. So this article, you know, concludes that the term medically necessary is nothing more than a ruse used by abortion industry to justify abortions of convenience. And that's exactly what it is. It's it's out of convenience that most people want to get rid of the baby. They don't want to take care of it anymore. And it's basically saying that 90% of the abortions performed are for economic and social convenience reasons and not for medical necessary reasons. In fact, out of that even, it's a very small percentage of probably less than 1% of anything needed for medically necessary abortions. But doctors can use that as an open-ended language to allow anyone to kill and murder their babies for any reason because they'll just term it medically necessary. That it's become freely av available to abort your babies for any reason at all. Um, well, my administrators um, were all very supportive of it. Um, they actually helped me um, have the camera they helped i did all the editing i found the music um i mean that's all me it's mostly my production i just had a really great team of women behind me who um wanted to help stop the stigma of abortion okay and, and, and so hold on so emily you, uh, let me let me ask a crazy question that you're gonna uh, first of all you knew you were gonna take heat when you did this right you understand you're gonna be it's it's a controversial topic you're well aware of it you're an abortion counselor and doing this has gotta you gotta be to know my qu I'm going to ask a crazy question. Okay. Did you get pregnant in order to do this video? Right. A lot of people on Twitter <laughs> said the same thing. Um, and you realize that I'm going to have to laugh at that, right? Like, uh, absolutely. If, it, if it's laughable, pregnant. I hope it is. I, I'm relieved to see you laugh. Okay. Uh, our panel's got lots of questions for you, so here's yes. Samantha. Emily, okay, first of all, I'm pro-choice, but your message was lost to me when you wrote in your essay that you were having sex, but you were not using birth control. So was, your, was abortion your form of birth control? And is so that the actually, message you want to put out there? So actually, what I want to clarify,
clarify is that I was not, uh, I did not have a, a single partner. Like, I didn't, I was not in a relationship. And to be honest, let's talk about the fact that hormonal birth control can be very scary to women. It can be very scary to put hormones in your What's body. What's so scary about a condom? condom? What's scary about a condom exactly. or, or any other barrier Absolutely. method? That's okay. It like, should not be scary. I worry about you getting an STD if somebody doesn't use a condom. Forget the birth control piece. And my question is, have you ever done anything in your life that you that was a mistake? Have you ever smoked a cigarette? Have you ever ran a red light? Have you ever done something that you knew there was consequences? And then you said, wow, that was probably not the most, uh, you know, intellectual decision I made. You learn from it and you move forward. Okay. During the procedure, okay. Okay. I got right. an IUD inserted. Oh, excellent. Hey, oh, excellent. Okay, so Leanne, yeah, go ahead. Like, well, I, I just don't understand why people are trying to bash me on this. I, like, I've admitted well, that, like, okay. hey, we all make mistakes. This is the point. Of empathy. course. Let's talk it. about empathy. Well, I, think, I learned from my mistake okay. and Leanne. I moved forward. Oh, one sec, Emily. You know, I, think I appreciate it, it, your it, answer, Emily. Yeah. I appreciate point, your answer. At some point, things should just be private, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. I'm, I'm proud of you for making the, the decision that you thought was right. That's probably best for the child that you weren't. You, it didn't seem like you were ready to have uh, a child, but you were ready to have sex, and then you were ready to have an abortion. To me, it seems that you're trivializing uh, something that's really traumatic for a lot of people, thinking you're helping them. You are helping them. You're an abortion. You work in an abortion clinic, so you're already helping people. I don't think going viral and putting a video out there is, is right, doing right. anything because I feel Leanne, like it's self-serving. But, but I, I, I want to know, what about women the, that get, get raped? What about women that get raped and have to have an abortion, and they're watching you go, well, ooh, I, cool, I, I'm yay. I'm going to stop you. I, I, I'm going to stop you because I, I don't think there's we should get lot. focused on the... Uh, there's a lot in yeah, there. Yeah, I don't think we should focus... Hang on, Emily. Yeah, there's a lot of... I don't really want to get into an abortion conversation. I want to get into whether or not the video is the right thing for her to do. Uh, Judy, my question is, is anything private anymore, and it, does this trivialize this very important issue? Right. And Emily, I have a question for you to follow up on what Dr. Drew just said, which is, you know, is this trivializing it? And I, to that point, there was something that you said in your Cosmopolitan interview that this process was like giving birth to you, that it felt like giving birth, that you were humming through it. And I'm just wondering if that's trivializing women who are giving birth. And can you really compare an abortion to a birth-like process? And I was just wondering what you were thinking when you said that to Cosmopolitan. Well, um, there's a lot of questions circulating right now. Um, I would say that I've studied birth, so I'm a birth doula. I support women during their birth procedures. Birth procedures, I'm sorry, their birth, birthing experience. Um, right. And so the thing about birth is that it is personal, it is sacred, it is yours, and, and that, like, you need to be supported. It should be something that you craft with, like, having exactly whoever you want in the room with you. And so that's what I did. That's what I meant by this was as birth-like as possible. I was supported 360 degrees by women who held my hand, who said, like, you are strong and you are beautiful and you are making the best decision for your life and we trust you because you trust okay. yourself. Okay. I mean, okay. it was Wendy, just full of thoughts. love and support. And so because of that, like, I, I did feel like it was... Like, the, the, I still have a relationship with my body and with my pregnancy. And, and that's the thing is that, like, you can't tell me that I'm trivializing it because you're not me. You're not me. Okay, I can Wendy. only speak on Wendy, my own personal Hold experience. On. Uh, are there are three arms, you know, when we're looking and the gal training me said twins. It was twins. Sue, so you described when you were first being trained at Planned Parenthood, they sent you to an actual abortion room to witness the procedure. Can you tell us about that experience? Well, when you first start out, they 
they have the trainees stand by the door. And I did that for the first two or three procedures and I finally said, why, why does that happen? And she said, well, usually when somebody comes in for the first time, they pass out. And um, I didn't, I didn't pass out. So after, I don't know, a few were done, they let me start moving closer so I could get to the foot of the bed and be able to see, you know, what was, what was happening. But the whole procedure only takes just three or four minutes. And um, what they call the contents of uterus or products of conception are emptied into this gallon jar. And they turn it off and take this suction thing off the gallon jar and set it in the, the um, pass-through and it goes into the dirty lab. So then you go around the corner and into the dirty lab, take the jar out, put it in this big, like a Rubbermaid colander and rinse it with this big hose then you dump it in this little glass jar and put it on this little shelf that has this bright light. And you bring the light over it and you kind of piece it back together and try to see if you got all the parts. Um, and I remember standing there looking at that and I said, why are there three arms? You know, and we're looking and the gal training me said, twins, it was twins. And I said, you know, do you tell the mom that she had twins? And she says, no, it usually just upsets them. Then of course the, this jar, this little glass bowl with this baby, depending on how far along the baby was, there's this big white porcelain sink and they would dump it in there, rinse it, put the bowl back to use next time and hit the plunger and it would flush kind of like a toilet. And I just remember standing there thinking all those babies are in the Des Moines sewer system. In later time that I would be there, they were putting those babies in little red bags and with a twist tie and then they'd fling them in the freezer. And I remember kind of thinking, I wonder what they do with those because I thought if there's a buck to be made, they will sell those. October 2016 until uh, June 2017. Um, I picked them babies up at that abortion clinic. I know it was at least twice a week I picked them up. I, I called when they got protesters out there. I called them up and they said, well, we'll send someone over at the gas station just meet us over there. I didn't feel good myself for doing it because it was wide open in the public. I didn't like a, a lot of things they were doing and that, that was one reason why I, I exited out the door. That, that's why I ended up leaving them alone because didn't felt that everything they were doing was right and they weren't honest with me from the beginning. The guy that trained me, <laughs> um, he been on that company at least 12, 13 years and I think I was about the seventh guy in two or three years that came and left. And every time I rode by that place, I got a chill on the inside. So and I just... I didn't want to deal with them no more. Well, you're talking to a former driver that went up to the, to the lady, the nurse that took it out the freezer. And I dealt with that for an eight, nine months. I watched them pull it out the freezer with gloves on, put it in a red bag, which the bag is supposed to, and I watched them take the box closed. And it smells. So what's, what's frozen with blood, and you can see it, and it make you want to puke. And you turn your head because you don't want to see her stick it in the box and take it up. So what else y'all pulling out? It's a woman's clinic. A baby. 
They was mainly small. Me, myself, I didn't want to look at it. Not at all, because I, I, I believe if I would have looked at it, I just probably would have walked off the job. And the label was incinerated, yellow label, incinerated, meaning it get burnt up. Get unloaded off the truck, and they get fried in that big heater or big oven they had up in their facility. It was my last stop, put like that. And that, that's one of the stops I dreaded to go to. So, you know, this is an abortion facility, right? They do abortions here up until 20 weeks. When you go in there, what you pick up, you're gonna pull out aborted babies, dismembered human beings, the hands and feet, arms and legs of children that were dismembered by powerful vacuums and forceps. Sir, we've already been urging specific waste industries not to participate in this. We have a campaign against them. We have people calling them. Tell your company you don't wanna do this. You used to service the abortion facility in Kentucky and then you stopped. Why are you doing this again? Yeah. I know you're just doing your job, but your job is enabling abortion. Your job is enabling the killing of innocent human beings. Don't stand for this. Tell your employer, I don't want to pick up aborted babies. I don't want to be accomplice to child killing and enable that. I don't want to be part of that. You don't have to keep picking up these babies. You don't have to do this. Tell your company, they can stop. They can drop the abortion facilities. They can drop Planned Parenthood. Don't let them continue to enable abortion. Just leave here right now, sir. We know other drivers who have, who have quit their jobs. We can help you find a new job, find a new company to work for. You don't have to do this. Just don't even go in there today. Just leave. If you don't take up, if you don't pick up the babies, they can't kill them. Sir, I know you don't want to haul around dismembered bodies of human beings. Let us help you get another job. You don't have to do this, sir. Sir, look at that. Look at all those bodies. These aren't just sharps, these aren't just needles. These are bought dismembered bodies of human beings. These are real children who deserve a burial, who deserve respect, deserve dignity. You could let us take those, sir. We would bury the bodies of those children. We would have a funeral for them. We would bury them. This just isn't picking up human, just tissue from a surgery. This is picking up the whole bodies of human beings who are killed. You know, they piece these bodies back together after they kill them. They collect all the body parts out of suction equipment. And then they put them under a light and a dish and sift through everything and they piece together to make sure they have all the limbs, the hands, the feet, make sure nothing's left in the woman. We are here to say that we love these children, that we love these human beings who were killed. Even if their parents didn't love them, even if those who killed them hated them, even if people now dispose of them. That's the moral question, isn't it? Should having something having failed that was trying to be done, should we still allow the, the outcome that was desired to occur, which is to, yeah. to let the child die. So I think that what, the, what happens and in here, in this country, we're very, very clear, we're very clear in our service that the point of an abortion is to terminate the pregnancy, to end the pregnancy without there being a live birth. So a live birth is not a good result. Mm -hmm. It really isn't yeah. for anybody who's, who's, con who, who's concerned. Um, 
and and typically that situation would be prevented because you would carry out uh, you would stop the fetal heart before the procedure is is carried out so it's not going to happen should it happen mm-hmm. actually what we're legally obliged to do and you might also say what morally the right thing to do is to treat say i don't know for some reason the gestation has been wildly misassessed then of course what you would be doing is treating that baby in a way that is humane and if it is sufficiently advanced and could be resuscitated and could have a life that is of course what you would do even if you had only moments before been trying to kill the baby well i'm i'm thinking i'm we're talking hypotheticals mm. here so i'm putting myself in a hypothetical situation of say for example i don't know something had gone terribly wrong with a mm. scanning mm. process and terribly wrong with the diagnostics and a woman was having a medical abortion the fetal heart hadn't been stopped and she delivered a fetus that turned out to be 32 weeks pregnant mm. and actually you didn't think it was of course you're going to do everything that you can to keep that baby alive the nurses the staff are not monsters right. you know of course you would be trying to do that because you would be in a different situation is that what happens in practice in these admittedly rare but they do happen occasionally live birth situations from from abortions I I honestly don't know. Um I never was part of a an abortion where the baby was born alive, but you know if if the doctor misses with the needle, he's aiming for the heart with the digoxin to stop the heart. If he misses, that baby's going to be born alive. You know, and those are discussions that are beyond difficult. I I just never I mean I know the mother is birthing the baby, yeah, but, but it's know, so what but you see this is what we're talking about a real difference mm. and and this is the problem right is that it comes to a question of whether or not you think that it's right that let's call her the mother the mm. the mother is allowed to have an abortion at 16 18 weeks you're right if feticide is not successful if that injection does not stop the fetal heart in some of those cases mm-hmm. uh 16 17 or 18 weeks you may very well get movement in the fetus if it's been mm. delivered medically now that is not going to mean that there is the possibility of continuing life because there's frankly no possibility of a baby that's been born at that gestation surviving for long outside the womb so of course what the nurse would do in that situation is to do everything possible to keep it warm keep it comfortable and 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 so on and indeed to manage the mother because that is a horrible situation for everyone involved but your conclusion would be so that only goes to show that women at that gestation shouldn't be allowed to terminate their pregnancy whereas my response to it is that woman should be allowed to terminate that pregnancy and as a service it's our job to do everything that we can to make sure that that situation isn't created mm-hmm.
So it's a, it, it's a fundamentally different view depending on whether or not you think abortion should be allowed Obviously, or it shouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you start from very different points of view to begin with obviously on on these questions but we, i have shared your point of view i mean i think that's what brings me the perspective i have is i've yeah. been where you are and um i've seen it i've stood there and watched it day and day and day you know in and out and um did it and felt like i was helping women you know to get out of a bad situation and in the end i wasn't our pro-life news new undercover planned parenthood video is released my my biceps appreciate the ditch works. <laughs> That's a former medical director of a Planned Parenthood saying she needs to go to the gym to perform a dismemberment abortion with forceps. Dr. Deshaun Taylor describes how to deliver babies intact during late-term abortions, allegedly in order to harvest body parts. It's the latest video released by the Center for Medical Progress. David Delayden is the man behind the undercover Planned Parenthood videos and project lead at the Center for Medical Progress. He joins us from our EWTN studios in Garden Grove, California. David, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. David, in Arizona, it is law that if a baby that's being aborted shows signs of life, that baby must be transported to the hospital. When you asked Dr. Deshaun Taylor about that protocol, she said the key is you need to pay attention to who is in the room. You were the one in conversation with Dr. Taylor. What did you gather she meant by that? That was one of the most disturbing comments that I have ever heard from any Planned Parenthood abortion doctor or really any abortion doctor in my time undercover in the abortion industry. When the law is that if a baby comes out intact in a late-term abortion, and you're supposed to check for the signs of life of the baby, whether there's, a, whether there's a beating heart or respiration or pulsation of the umbilical cord or movement of voluntary muscles. And if there are signs of life, you're supposed to do everything you can to save the baby. When I asked Dr. Taylor, this longtime Planned Parenthood abortion doctor, what her standard procedure was for verifying signs of life, this is a doctor who does abortions up to five and six months of pregnancy on healthy, viable children. Her response was, well, you just, the key is you need to pay attention to who else is in the room with you. And that was one of about three times when we talked to her when she made comments about paying attention to who else was in the room or paying attention to the reactions of the other staff workers in the clinic that they might have to seeing a, to seeing a, a viable late-term fetus come out in one piece. What? So it's highly disturbing, and I think that that's prima facie evidence um, of a willingness to cover up infanticide and not to comply with the law to protect the lives of late-term, born-alive, viable infants. Was Dr. Taylor speaking about her experience at a Planned Parenthood clinic or a different clinic? It sounded to me like she was speaking about her experience um, as an abortion provider. And she's been an abortion provider for many different Planned Parenthood clinics um, as recently as within the past year. She's worked for the very biggest Planned Parenthood affiliate in the entire country, Planned Parenthood Marmonte. And she also recently, in the past couple of years here, has been operating her own independent abortion clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, Dr. Taylor and many of the people you've talked with in your videos seem quite open, sharing details of their work. Was it difficult to proffer this information to be shared, or is it common knowledge within the abortion industry? You know, one of the things that was quite disturbing is the more and more conversations that we had with doctors like that, 
the more and more that we realized that a lot of this stuff was pretty commonplace. The feelings, um, the really intense, sometimes conflicted feelings that, that some abortion providers have about doing later second trimester abortions where they're seeing all of the baby body parts and they're dealing with that violence um, and the intimacy of that violence up close, that affected, affects many of the abortion doctors. The difficulties, just the procedural difficulties of a later second trimester abortion was something that many abortion doctors commented on. The willingness to make changes in the abortion technique in order to get more intact body parts for sale, that is something across the board that Planned Parenthood doctors, even Planned Parenthood medical directors, were happy to do. Um, and also the fact that in, if you're doing a high volume of later second trimester abortion procedures, the fact that just occasionally you are going to have completely intact cases, completely intact babies coming out, that's something that multiple Planned Parenthood abortion doctors told us. Um, and just by the fact that it, it seems to be, you know, given the odds 1 in 30 or 1 in 100, if you're doing enough of those procedures, it happens at a somewhat predictable rate. If we were really serious in this country about protecting the lives of our unborn brothers and sisters, drawing a bright line between abortion procedures and straight-up infanticide when a baby is born alive, frankly, law enforcement in every jurisdiction where there are abortions being done at or after 20 weeks ought to be routinely doing weekly check-ins, weekly drop-ins on those clinics, serving search warrants on their path labs and double-checking whether or not the babies are coming out intact and whether or not they're coming out alive. Because that's the key to preventing something like Kermit Gosnell happening again, where because the, because the subject was the political football of abortion in the Kermit Gosnell case in Philadelphia, nobody did inspections, nobody paid any attention for 17 years, even though people knew that something wrong was going on. And so Gosnell was, away, was able to get away with infanticide for 17 years because nobody followed up, nobody had scrutiny, nobody checked in. And now, of course, he is behind bars. David, you released the latest undercover video hours after you were hit with 15 felony charges in California. Why not wait to release new videos until your legal issues are resolved? Well, these charges, the 15 charges in the state of California, are all based around the videotapes. They're all based around the act of recording, which under California law is not illegal if it's a conversation that's held out in public or out in a public area. That's why these 15 charges are totally bogus, because every single videotape that's cited in the Attorney General's complaint is a videotape that was made of a conversation that was out in public, where it could be overheard, and in fact it was overheard, and we can prove that because you'll see it on the videotapes. And so, pinpoint political prosecutions like the California Attorney General's office has brought at the behest of Planned Parenthood cannot be allowed to stop and stifle the public conversation and the free and open exchange of ideas and information on issues of burning public concern like Planned Parenthood's barbaric taxpayer-funded abortion business. David Deladin, project lead for the Center for Medical Progress, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Leiden is the pro-life citizen journalist behind the Center for Medical Progress and its undercover Planned Parenthood videos. We sat down with him last week to get the latest on his legal battles, and it became clear very quickly that Delayden had a number of legal run-ins with former California Attorney General and now a Democratic presidential candidate, Kamala Harris. That's where we pick up our conversation for this week's Pro-Life Focus. Tell us more about your encounters with her and a raid on your apartment? Yeah. 
So in April of 2016, at the behest of Planned Parenthood, Kamala Harris ordered um, a search warrant served on, on my home in Orange County. Uh, I think it was 11, a total of 11 agents of the California Department of Justice sent by Kamala Harris came in, overturned my entire one-bedroom apartment. Um, they seized all of the video recording equipment, all of my computer equipment, um, everything that was, all, all, all the electronic equipment that was used to do the undercover filming. Fortunately, there were backup hard drives and, you know, attorneys had copies of stuff mm -hmm. and, and other things. So, so they didn't take anything that I absolutely needed in order to continue to, to do my work, but they, but they primarily, they were looking for the videos and they were looking for the original videos. Uh, we now, we have in, in, in the investigative the investigator notes mm -hmm. from the attorney general's office now, they recorded in their uh, case notes, Planned Parenthood specifically requesting of Kamala Harris's office that they would specifically go in and seize the videos from me. So they were trying to take all the, the raw footage away and trying to do a, a huge cover-up. They weren't successful at doing that, but that was, that, that, that's, that's just one of many things that Kamala Harris, as Attorney General of California, was willing to do to put the powers of her law enforcement office at the service of the interests of a, of a powerful and favored political backer at Planned Parenthood. That being said, she is a likely 2020 presidential candidate. Uh, what do you want viewers to know about her as we see that she will likely run? Yeah, you know, uh, I just saw her recently on, I think it was MSNBC, talking about the confirmation hearings of William Barr, who's the new nominee mm -hmm. for attorney general. And Senator Harris was opining that per, that really uh, nominee Barr, if, con if confirmed, probably she thinks should recuse himself from the Russia investigation because of some op-eds he's written about the Mueller probe or something like that. Well, when Kamala Harris had the Planned Parenthood case, which was the, the investigation mm. of me, brought before her as Attorney General, while she was running for U.S. Senate, while Planned Parenthood in California was contributing to her political campaign and she was fundraising for them, fundraising off of her goodwill with Planned Parenthood for her senatorial campaign, did she recuse herself from the Planned Parenthood investigation? No, she didn't. In fact, she, she didn't even set up, they sometimes talk about having a, a wall of separation in the prosecutor's office in mm. order to make sure that there's no improper crossover. Not, over, not only did she not recuse, did she not set up a wall of separation, she consciously and willfully involved herself directly and personally in the Planned Parenthood case. She had an in-person meeting with six Planned Parenthood executives from California in Los Angeles two weeks before the raid on my apartment. Mm -hmm. We have the action item notes and the email from her assistant from that meeting. Wow. They show that among the Planned Parenthood folks present, two of them were witnesses in the, in the criminal investigation that Kamala Harris's office was, was orchestrating against me and Sandra. And they show that the agenda items that Kamala Harris discussed with those Planned Parenthood witnesses and representatives at that meeting included both Planned Parenthood's political agenda in California and issues in the criminal investigation. So there was a direct mixing of her political roles and political agenda and, and campaign agenda and political agenda of an outside third party directly mixed in, inseparable from her role as a law enforcement officer. That is some powerful insight right there. Uh, you mentioned William Barr. Uh, he is currently in the confirmation process 
for him to become potentially the next Attorney General of the United States. He's a fellow Catholic as well. If he is in fact confirmed, what action would you like to see him take and, and for the Department of Justice to take on Planned Parenthood? I really hope that the Department of Justice will start to do its job and hold Planned Parenthood accountable to the law the same way that any other organization or any other entity should be held accountable to the law. Uh, I think of, you know there's a great irony of the past two years here with the Department of Justice that DOJ and FBI have been rather vigorously investigating and prosecuting a group of Native Americans in North and South Dakota who were trafficking and selling in the body parts of bald eagles. Hmm. And they were harvesting and selling bald eagle body parts across the country for profit. And they have been vigorously investigated and indicted and prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice. And yet, meanwhile, it's been two years and Planned Parenthood still hasn't been indicted or prosecuted for harvesting and selling the body parts of tiny preborn children. Um, and you would think that, especially under a pro-life administration, that surely the body parts of unborn children and the trafficking and selling of baby body parts is just as horrific and, and just of as much concern as the harvesting and selling and trafficking of bald eagle body parts. So, you know, we, we, uh, we did get uh, some good news about a year ago. It was announced by the U.S. DOJ that they had opened an active criminal investigation of some of the biggest Planned Parenthood affiliates in the country, plus their business partners, based on the criminal referrals from the congressional investigations that were very good and very thorough. So it's been, a, it's been about a year now. We, you know, the public hasn't heard any, anything since. But, uh, but I do hope that um, if someone as experienced as Attorney General Barr were to be confirmed, I mean, Maybe, maybe not. Hope, maybe, maybe not even before the confirmation. But really, it's you know, it's been a year now, and I think, um, I think it's important for people to see that nobody is above the law, and DOJ should do their job on this the same way that they're doing their job on eagle body parts. Should be done on baby body parts as well. A man in Vietnam has buried more than twenty thousand babies by now. Three graveyards full of the tragic remains of things gone wrong in life. The reasons these babies are in the ground shocked many people. But of course, there is always more than one side to a story. Let me explain how it all came to be. Tong Phuoc Phuc. The man's name was Tong Phuoc Phuc, and I'll call him Tong for short, and he lives in Hong Thong, in the province of Nha Trang in central Vietnam. In 2001, his wife was pregnant, and the birth was quite an event. The labor was difficult, and she had to stay in the hospital for a couple of days. As she lay there recovering, Tong visited her many times. Sitting by her bedside, he would see other pregnant women come into the clinic. Some were not far yet, with little bumps, and he assumed they came for a checkup. However, when after a while they walked out of the hospital again, they were suddenly not pregnant anymore. They also did not have a baby in their arms either, and he would not see them again. Tong was confused. What was happening with all these babies? He realized that these women had terminated their pregnancies in the hospital, and he was sad for them. But his heart also went out to all those unwanted babies. Where did they go when they were removed? He asked around and found out not much was done with them. They were simply disposed of. Tong, a Christian man, could not let this pass. So he asked if they would be willing to give the unborn babies to him so he could give them a proper burial. Something inside him told him that this was important, that this was something he had to do. Working as a construction worker, Tong had some money put aside, and he used these funds to buy land. The plot he found lay atop a mountain, and it was a peaceful place. 
this place would be the burial grounds. It took a while to get it all arranged, to receive the proper permits and everything. But finally, in July 2004, he was able to receive the first baby, and he buried it on the 13th of that month. It was a major milestone for the man, but it was definitely not the last baby he would arrange a proper farewell for. Little did he know how big this would actually get, and that he would become world famous doing it. Unwanted pregnancies are something everyone has an opinion on. On and off for years, the country has enforced a two-child policy, leading families expecting a third child to find themselves in an administrative pinch, and even facing fines for having an additional child beyond the first two. Subsidies are definitely not given for larger families, and many simply find themselves unable to keep the baby. Finally, with evolving techniques surrounding pregnancies, many more people seek out to know the sex of their child before the birth. As you may know, in many countries, the birth of a son is preferred over a daughter, socially as well as culturally, and this has now sadly led to many unborn girls being aborted. Demographic experts and government administrators are actually worried that this gender gap will have severe effects later when all those young men grow up finding it hard to find a partner. Going back to Tong though, he was about to find out the full extent of the operation he had gotten himself into when the babies started pouring in. Little boxes were sent to him in large numbers, up to 30 babies per day sometimes, and he was struggling to deal with the influx. But he did, despite the overwhelming numbers, and every tiny soul got a spot in the ground of his carefully prepared graveyard. He would lay them side by side with a little gravestone and colorful flowers for each, naming each child after a saint. Soon, the news about his efforts got out, and people were touched. Seeing all those graves and realizing the reasons for their existence, people were also shocked. This was an impressive undertaking this man had taken upon him. Volunteers soon started to show up to help Tong with the activities, and this was a tremendous relief. But now, not just the hospitals were sending him little bodies. Also, those babies found on roadsides or in dumpsters were being brought to him, which is simply heartbreaking to think about. Tong was taking them all in, gave them all a little coffin, and made sure they all got a proper burial. The graves started to run into the thousands now. Tong's story, besides going viral, also touched the hearts of women that were pregnant unexpectedly and contemplated having the baby removed. Seeing all those little graves made them think twice, actually. However, many still could not see how to have and raise the upcoming child. If you bring a child into the world, you also want to give it the best life possible, and many women just do not have the means and the support around them to do so. After many years and more than 15,000 burials, Chong in the meantime was getting tired. It seemed to be an endless problem, and the more he thought about it, the more he realized he needed to help the women who were struggling to stem the stream of unwanted babies needing to be buried. So he started to talk to the young women about options for keeping the baby, and in some cases, he found himself offering to take the baby himself and raise it. Suddenly, from a gravedigger, Tong slowly found himself entering the realm of childcare, starting a makeshift orphanage for all the children that ended up being born after all, but that were still unable to stay with their mothers. Myung Nguyen was one of the ladies who found herself rejecting the idea of abortion after seeing the graveyard and talking to Tong. He would help her raise her daughter, he said, if she allowed it to come into the world. When the little girl was born, he took her in and allowed Nyong to visit her anytime she wanted. We often say that one person cannot possibly make a difference, but Tong was proving this more than wrong. He was creating more and more waves, and now his foster home project also made headlines around the world. Although many people wanted to help, they did not see themselves traveling to Vietnam and helping Tong feeding, clothing, and caring for all those children, or helping dig more graves. But there are, of course, other ways to help, and donations started to pour in. 
from monetary funds to gifts of food and other resources needed by the orphanage, like blankets, formula milk, and toothbrushes. Soon, Tong had taken in more than 100 children, but thankfully had also been able to reunite more than 50 of those with their birth mothers. Sometimes all it takes is a will to make something happen, and when the right opportunity presents itself, all these circumstances shift. The world can look brighter. Dr. Charlotte Roberts is a biological anthropologist. She hopes to discover remains that are sufficiently well-preserved to indicate whether the children were healthy or diseased. If they're diseased, then it's likely that effects are ordinary cemeteries for children who died from natural causes. But if they're healthy, then perhaps they died in some unnatural way, possibly in a sacrificial rite. A normal skeleton would make her task relatively easy, but these remains were cremated 3,000 years ago. Here we've got one cremated individual, we assume. And if I just gradually tip this out on the table, you can probably understand the problems I'm faced with when it comes to doing an analysis of this sort of material. The first thing is it's really fragmented and there are lots and lots of fragments. Charlotte's first task is to confirm that the bones are indeed from infants. Um, here we've got what looks like a rib from a baby. And here I think we've got part of the mandible, the lower jaw. Here, yes, this looks like part of the skull, uh, something called the petrous part of the temporal bone. These are the ones that survive quite well in cremation. As Charlotte picks through the bones, she makes an unexpected discovery. Here's a bit of pelvis, which I think is from a sheep or a goat. Here's another animal bone, again, probably from a sheep or a goat. And this big chunk is also animal bone. And there are different ways of identifying human from non-human. The outer layer of the bone here, which is called the cortex, tends to be more dense um, and, and often thicker than a human bone. Inside the urns, mixed up with the children's bones, we also find the bones of small animals which were sacrificed during the cremation ceremony. The sacrifice of these small birds or lambs was meant to accompany the child to the other side, to the next life. Charlotte Roberts has found human teeth, an important indicator of general health. If they show signs of disease, then the children could have died from natural causes and not in a sacrificial rite. The teeth survive very well during burial, uh, much better than the bones, so we do get quite a lot of evidence for dental disease. Um, what we term metabolic diseases, so disorders of normal metabolism, things like anemia, rickets, vitamin D deficiency, scurvy, vitamin C deficiency. Metabolic disorders could affect dental development, so Charlotte uses the microscope to look for defects in the enamel. After careful scrutiny, she's prepared to reach some conclusions. The basis of what I've seen, there's, there's no dental defects in these teeth from these individuals, um, suggesting that they didn't suffer any disease or nutritional problems. In all, Charlotte looked at the remains of over 20 children. She found nothing to suggest they died of disease. 
And there's one piece of archaeological evidence which supports the theory that the children in the Tophet were healthy when they met their death. It's an engraving on one of the standing stones found above the urns. There's a very evocative image that actually shows a priest cradling a young infant in his arms. It's very clear that the child is alive. He's being held upright and cradled in the arm. And uh, I think this is the process that happens before the immolation of the child, before the cutting of the throat and the actual sacrifice. I think the evidence that would really settle this debate over child sacrifice versus uh, natural burial would be the evidence of the age of the children uh, cremated. So how old are the children buried in the Tophet? Were most of them stillborn or newborns who died in the first critical weeks of life? The answers could lie in the teeth that Charlotte Roberts is examining. We know in modern populations how the teeth develop, when each teeth starts to develop, when it comes through the gums and sh shows in the mouth. Um, and then we compare what we see in our archaeological teeth with the modern data. Even 3,000-year-old teeth can give evidence of the children's age at the time of death. Well, looking at these teeth down the microscope, we've got two people here, and on the basis of the teeth, they're two to three months of age when they were cremated. None of the 20 children examined by Charlotte were stillborn or newborn. All the teeth were from infants aged between two or three months. And even more compelling evidence about the age of the children has been found in Israel. The Hebrew University in Jerusalem has a team analyzing the teeth found in Carthage. Once again, the aim is to find out the age of the babies in the urns. Last month, the preliminary results on 20 tooth samples known as tooth germs came through. So far, none of the babies were stillborn. And here, this is the germ. It's the first baby molar, the first deciduous molar. And this is the crown, only about half formed. This suggests that this infant was aged one to two months when it died. Other children found at Carthage were much older. And if I take out this tooth germ, this is the tooth germ of a first permanent molar. And here you can see that the crown is about two-thirds formed. That indicates that this child was about two years old when he died or was sacrificed. We have so far only looked at a small sample of the remains from Carthage. But we have found some infants that were as old as five years. None of the 40 children examined from both the Carthage and Motya Tofets were stillborn. Their ages ranged from two or three months to two years, and one was about five. These results undermine Professor Bartoloni's theory that the Tofet was a special cemetery for stillborns or babies who died shortly after birth. It seems that the Phoenicians probably did sacrifice their children to appease their gods. After birth, would you, would you support that? I believe in whatever the woman wants to choose to do, that's her choice. Even after the baby's born? It's always her choice. So if they're two years old? It's always her choice. I can kill my two-year-old? 
it's a woman's right to choose. But the two biblical stories, one of them was when Solomon, he had great wisdom to decide matters in his kingdom. And one of the women stole another woman's baby and claimed it as hers. So the, the real mother came to Solomon and said she wanted her baby. Uh, since there was no proof whose baby it was, Solomon told the women, well, let's just divide the baby in half. Each take its half. So, of course, the real mother screamed, saying, no, no, no. She can have the baby. It's mine. I don't want to hurt it. I don't want to split it in half. Let her have the baby. While the fake mother was more than willing to cut it in half to give it to the other. So you could see, you know, the true love of a real mother is the love that God planted in her heart, would always do the best for her child, would not take such evil acts to do an abortion, murder, or do anything that would harm it, but would protect it. And she ultimately has the fear of God inside of her to do the right thing. And the other biblical story shows the same level of reverence and fear of God that most people lack today. It has to do with the midwives in the days of Moses when the Pharaoh told all the midwives to kill the firstborn males of the Hebrew children. And the midwives made up a story and refused to do it. And it says in the Bible that the reason why they didn't follow the order of the Pharaoh is because they feared God. And God honored them with their own family of their own. So it's important to God, obviously, you know, to do the right thing. And even though, you know, Pharaoh as a government commanded everyone to kill all the Hebrew children, you know, those with the conscience still had to resist. They didn't have to follow it. So that goes in line with all those practitioners along the way, people that are involved in carrying out the sin from beginning to end, even disposing of the body. They all have to make that personal choice. Do they fear God or do they just fear losing their job, you know, doing what they're told to do? And that's the split that's happening between the world. Those are they're going to follow God's voice and heed to his commands and those that don't. So if you are in the situation where you feel like you there's no way to go on but to do the evil act of actually aborting your baby, there's always a choice and that choice is to honor God first. There's always a way out. Because with each child, even though it looks like it's a dead end, and perhaps financially a burden that you think you can't handle. The truth is, the children are given as a blessing. So with each blessing, there is abundance and prosperity that goes along with taking care of that child. So things will come into your life for God that's going to place it so you are able to handle raising your children and providing for them as you need to. And God will give you what you need every step of the way. It's the foolish ones that don't trust God, they don't understand what life is and what God, who God is, that they want to do this on their own and make decisions where other are 
promoting it, you know, telling the women, yay, you did a great thing. You're beautiful. You're wonderful for aborting your child. Opposite is true. You become ugly and your soul starts to die. So you got to listen to the voice of God and many others who tell you that this is the wrong thing. And if you manage to get to the video this far and you're one of those women that are considering to get an abortion, I hope by now you would understand that this is a very bad idea for not just you, yourself, and your baby that's going to be gone, but all of society who has to deal with it and ultimately God who has to judge you for doing it. So please reconsider and talk to God to help you out, and he will. Your baby is your blessing, and it's your salvation too. So the last thing you should do is take away what God has given you and try to take it upon yourself. Thank you for listening.